0: Welcome, welcome to another Rags Riches Secrets. Today's podcast, we are going over the fourth turning, the beginning of the end, Peter Zihon. Um, This right here, if you haven't read his book, The Beginning of the End, this book is excellent. And so we're going through the next section. So we're in section right now, this is section number six. And really what it's talking about is currency, the long path to currency, and how we took and we got here. One of the big things that happened, if you recall, there was World War, so it was in the August of 1945. You know, basically all of the previous superpowers got smashed and the United States basically emerged as the superpower. We created relationships with other countries and we established, basically without actually having to establish ourselves as the global currency, we ended up establishing ourselves as the global, global currency. And, and so there's some magic that took place. What we did is to create certainty, we provided the global currency that was then backed up by gold, so then people could have lots of confidence. We made sure all the shipping lanes, we made sure that anybody could trade anywhere anywhere in, or anywhere, anywhere in the world at any time was completely safe. And the way we took and we made sure the money was secure is we then we backed it up with gold. So, but it was like the thing that allowed it to be successful, but it, from the very beginning, was already baked that it would fail. Now, here, what, here's what I mean. This is, so if you think about it, the, the very fact that there was a global currency and the currency was available to help people do, to do transactions it literally allowed a trade to start expanding everywhere. People could start rebuild, they could ramp up, they could modernize, they could industrialize, they could urbanize at a fastest pace in the tire that we've ever seen. And the major lubricant that allowed everything to take place literally was access to capital or access to currency. But there was a problem with it set from the very beginning. So here's the problem, there's only about ever ever found collected total about 420 million pounds of gold and that gold if you were to extrapolate it out that was actually the only the equivalent that's only the equivalent of enough cash or capital in the entire world of 210 billion dollars it's not enough it's not enough and so as as you take as we as we take and we expand well, one of the things that took place is, is you have a rapid expansion. All of a sudden, we went from there was a huge increase in the amount of people on the planet. So we went from 2.5 billion people on the planet up to 3.8 billion people on the planet. And it was all driven or led by the U.S.-enabled dollar. So collectively, they took and they pegged it at $35 a troy ounce. And all it meant was from the very, very beginning, the US dollar or it was designed to fail. In fact, the French and a lot of these different countries, they started betting against the United States. We know that the United States is gonna fail. There's not enough supply. And then when they start, when they start having to issue like, like this currency, or they actually have to redeem it for gold, we already know that they are already gonna cry and they're already gonna squeeze or they're gonna squeal and pay whatever we want. And so they they bet against us. And that's when Nixon came in and said, you know what? We're just gonna straight up allow the dollar to free float based on the back and the trust of the entire of the United States. Kind of a magic moment that took in place took place. Because all of a sudden, instead of us staring down, looking at just the, the Russians at the time of the Soviet Union as only America versus the Soviet Union, as everybody looked at the failed American economy because we couldn't support it. Boom, it it lifted the shackles and all of a sudden we started adventuring. Okay, so it's pretty neat on what took and took place. Now, there's a lot of people say, oh, well, we moved from the gold standard. Just just keep that in mind. There is not enough gold in the entire planet to provide all the capital or all of the fiat or all the capital needed to fund everything. We would have bankrupted ourselves if we would have done that. Every country was shorting us. Okay, so that that was something that just had to happen. Okay. And so, now, basically, it's pretty straightforward. As we globalize, what the, what the United States does is we just start pumping out money and pumping it out, putting it out inside the world. So, now we have this great expansion. So, it, when, when we went to this fiat money, it allowed the doors to open for a lot of different products. So, now you can get, you can get uh, uh, like asset-backed securities. You can all of a sudden have... It just, it just gave birth to an entire system of new financial devices that could come into play. And so what, what happened is, is then products came on the market, like debt products. Then we had debt products to refinance those debt products. And what it did is, like, if you wanted to grow or to expand, just think if you got a business. You're trying to figure out how to grow or to expand your business. You probably don't have all the money up front to do it. So the only way you're going to be able to expand is if you figure out how to get access to capital. So there's a lot of countries that then discovered like, whoa, based on what the Westerns have been able to enable us to do, we can now expand. And so this triggered a rapid industrialization and a rapid uh, urbanization process. So you got countries like Germany. Germany is a very fiscally prudent uh, country. You know they have they have a, a habit of being very good savers. This allowed so it took put this into perspective. Germany is also a very very intelligent group of people. They know how to expand. It says the industrialization process that took Germany more than a century, okay, to build, and the Germans are no slouches. They're very effective at building and overhauling things very very quickly. It took Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong less than three decades, and it took the Koreans less than two decades to accomplish the same thing to industrialize. This triggered a cascade of improvements throughout the entire world. So you got Asia. So Asia, they started out in agriculture, okay? That gave away to textiles and to heavy industry. Um, In the post-1971 wave, Heavy industry gave away to even more advanced manufacturing of every single thing you can think of. So white goods, toys, automotives, electronics, computers, cell phone products, capital-driven growth upon capital-driven growth meant that within two two generations, all four countries had transformed themselves into modern industrial systems on par with many of the world's most established cities. Okay? So, considering... They were among the least developed and the poorest country or poorest patches on the entire Earth. They collectively became one of the his of history's greatest economic success stories. Capital, capital allowed things to change and allowed things to evolve. So you got Singapore. Singapore literally became a financial hub, allowing financial things to take into transact. So this allowed countries like Malaysia and Thailand they use them the Asian financial systems to successfully enter into semiconductors electronics and to far less extensive or successfully but into automotive then China came into the game and we all you've seen it China ramped up expand they like they probably have the single fastest neatest expansion in all of history and the crazy thing is is so China's entrance into the global order did not occur until after the Nixon Mao summit and the death of Mao, and basically they really didn't come into play until the 1970s. And boom, all of a sudden China showed up, and you see products everywhere that says manufactured in China. Literally, these guys loved it, adopted it, and went headlong into the fiat currency. So it's very interesting. But the thing with China. So if you take and you look at them. So as of as, as of 2022, China's outstanding debt was 350% of their gross domestic product. They had 385 uh, trillion won, or in in the US dollars, their national debt was 58 trillion dollars. And they're not even they're not even America, right? It's crazy. Um basically China came to the they, they doubled down on printing money more than we've ever seen. So like when the United States prints money, they print money two times faster. Frequently all the way up to five times faster. And it's like it wasn't even until 2010 that Hong Kong even started actually using their money. And so you're starting to wonder, like, why, why in the world would like China own a lot of, of American debt? Problem is, is they already know that their money's already junk. They've already got boatloads of inflation so to protect their assets they would take and hedge their bets by owning uh, dollars okay debt denominated in dollars so it, it, it's crazy it's crazy how it kind of took place but there's downsides okay so like you got you've got uh, places like Japan so Japan jumped on the same bandwagon and in, J- in Japan in 1989 they, they had a market crash they, they took a dump and they plundered, they went down deep. This crash of 1989, it took 30 years for Japan to emerge out from under the debt that they had accumulated, okay? So you got countries like Indonesia, like this, uh, they had a crash in 1998 and it destroyed their government twice. The country's political system remains chaotic mess, so now you got Korea and Thailand also crashed in 1998. They used the pain of that transaction to solidify to civilian rules. That's how they took it. They made their transformation. Okay. China. China's economic growth was absolutely crazy. It was literally driven by finance, finance, finance. In fact, they turn on the finance spigot. And they spit money out. And every time they try to figure out how to rein it in so that they're not such a crazy inflation environment. That every time they, they turn it off, like it, it all falls apart. It, it, the growth, everything falls apart. So then they just turn it on and they let it spin and let it spin and let it spin. Um, and hence why they take and they buy uh, U.S. debt or security so that they have trappings of wealth that doesn't get eroded completely by their inflation that they're driving. So the cool thing is you got countries like Germany. Ger- Germany has been very frugal. Very frugal. They're, very, they're very conscious about how they allocate money or how they take and they spend money. So, when you have the European Union coming together, we're talking about the Euros now. This is where the story actually starts to get very, very interesting. Okay. So, all of a sudden, you got the European Union come together and they have this great idea that everybody ought to be able to buy or borrow money on the same terms as highly credit worthy individuals. So, you ever pull a credit score? Like you've got an 800 credit score, you probably get better financing or 700 or whatever. They determine here. For some reasons, best understood by them, that everybody ought to have access to financing at the same rates. And so here's here's kind of how it plays out. So after they got access to it, the Europeans they went on to a borrowing binge. They greenlined They greenlighted every government. They greenlighted everybody to be able to buy. So the Austrian bank, they gorged on this free capital and lent it to Hungary's own version of the subprime market. Spanish bank started up. Uh, Started up flat out, uh, slush uh, fl- or created slush funds for political influencers. The Italian bank started lending in mass to not only to mobs but to organized crime syndicates in the Balkans. The Greek government took out massive loans in which they distrib- distributed to pretty much everyone. They had constructions in entire towns where no one wanted to live. Workers received 13 to 14 months salary bonuses. Citizens received direct payments simply for being citizens. Greece hosted the Olympics entirely on credit. Crazy, huh? Everyone could play. Everybody could jump in. So now we got Greece. Greece, the poster child. So climate, I mean, if you take and you have a habit of borrowing way more than you can earn, right? Or you can pay back. Somehow it seems to come back and hit you. So, despite adopting the euro in 2001, Greece by as of 2012 sported a national debt in excess of 175 percent of GDP. Um, with all their loans, that they couldn't take and fulfill. Um, Greece was hardly alone. Okay, basically, like they all—they're all in this game now. They're all having to take and to take bailouts, okay? Because they all can't pay back. What they all took on and borrowed, so they just became insolvent and so you got Brits Brits you know they actually didn't jump into the to the eurozone but between borrowing and certain things trying to keep up with everybody else in the union they actually ended up lending and they ended up having three um, let's see how many banks there was two of their largest banks straight out two of their largest five big banks straight out one into receivership okay So the Eurozone has been in and out of recessions multiple times before the COVID-2021 pandemic. Pushed everyone underwater at the same time. The countries that experienced credit uh, uh, breakdowns, most notably Greece, still remain in receivership as of 2022. Crazy, right? Entire countries just sitting inside receiverships. And so the entire European system is now just a little more little more than doing, going through the motions until the common currency inevitably shatters. That's how it plays. Take and borrow more than you can pay back, boom, got a problem. So, okay, so let's go. It's it's just kind of boom and bust, boom and bust, boom and bust. And so here's some examples so you can see how this boom and bust play about. So in pre-1970, okay, like because capital wasn't super accessible, you got companies like uh, Exxon. ExxonMobil, they would actually have to go into the country, find the oil, they would have to, on their own ExxonMobil platforms, ship it out, ship it to their own processing facilities, process it, and then they would have to take and go out and distribute it to the world. But as capital became available, there is a lot of little startup firms that actually could pop up and start participating and being involved in, like, say, an ExxonMobil supply chain process that allowed a lot of people to get into the game and start participating. Well, it also opened up windows for people to be in the game who you may not have thought should have been in the game. So you remember a company called Enron. Enron actually, it's like they were selling futures. They actually they were bookkeeping, keeping track of capital and stuff almost like they're doing futures, but they actually didn't own any set of assets. They didn't own anything, okay? And so what happened is is as they made their profits look better and better and better, one day it finally came home to roost that Enron was actually cooking their books and there was actually nothing. They didn't own the oil. They didn't own, like they didn't own any of the assets and as a result, it was one of the largest bankruptcies that ever occurred inside America, okay? When this took in this right around 20 uh, 2000, 2001, this kind of Enron like almost recession kind of gave way to a long a uh, low, I guess, long, robust, low inflation and expansion period, where literally where it stepped in, it kind of tri- it was kind of the the tipping point, the, the, the triggering of a massive boom inside the United States as far as real estate goes. And so the American dream, everybody wants to own a house, right? I want to own a house. I want to own a house since the 1950s. Everybody wants to own a house. Okay, what happened is is all of a sudden. We started making credit very accessible, very cheap, all kinds of good stuff. See, you're seeing how it's playing out in America. I just showed you how it plays out in these other countries too, okay? This is how it's playing out in America. So all of a sudden, we start pumping money into the market. And because the Fed's like, hey, we need to figure out how to get involved in this and figure out how to reduce the, the, the lending costs, the friction costs, so that we can have this American dream. And so they got in. So then you get this new type of business model, which is mortgage origination companies. They come in, they originate the mortgage, and then they take and they turn around and sell it to the investors, or they or they put it into the bond market. All these different vehicles. So all of a sudden, it's like, boom, we just offset all of our risk. We just originated the mortgage, boom, turned around, flipped it to an investor. Originated a mortgage, flipped it around to an investor, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and, and they take and they do this. And so in the beginning, Like you used to have to come in and you used to have to put like half the money down to buy a house. And then a half became like a quarter. And then a quarter went down to like 5% and then or 10%, then 5%. Then they had 5% cash back. And then they stopped even doing credit checks. And collectively, it all just disappeared all together. Just how much do you make? Okay, boom. They'd write it down on a piece of paper. They actually got to the point where they knew the game was up. So they would try to sell this paper on the market. They they got a buyer, a buyer came in, wanted to get a house. They knew that this buyer wasn't qualified, but since they weren't required to ask questions or verify that they were qualified, they would take and they would process the loan and they would sell it within days. And then they got it down within, uh, they even got down to hours and almost minutes trying to arrange the sell of these securities because they knew the game was up. Think of John Paulson. The guy knew he was selling mortgage-backed securities where they didn't have qualified, so he did a great short on his own product he was selling to became rich. Not exactly the way you want to go down in history is becoming rich. But that's what it did. So 2007, 2009, you guys remember the credit the, the financial crisis? It all came to a halt as everybody became aware that we all made a big stupid screw- up mistake. That took us two years before America finally finally got its footing back so we could start figuring out how to move forward. During this same time okay we had the United States was one of the largest we were the largest consumer and importer of gas and one of the things that took place because all of a sudden capital was cheap we're talking between 2000-2007 window all of a sudden this capital was very very cheap so what it did, like it has the ability to allow money to flow to places where it would not have historically flown. And so now all of a sudden, we, in America, we start saying, huh, I wonder how we can go about doing uh, horizontal drilling so that we can access, access new types of crude oil. And so then what we did is we started doing pressurized water injections to, to fracture, the sur- fr- or fracture the source rock then enabling trillions of packets of crude oil to flow out into the well shaft. Better recycling techniques reduce the volume of water so that we could, we could start gathering, basically it's fracking. It comes down to figuring out we started fracking or you call it the shell revolution. We literally figured out how to do this. This entire thing was fueled by having access to very, very cheap capital. And so then instead of being... Basically, collectively, it made the United States the world's largest oil and natural gas producers. But here's the thing. The only way that this works is if the capital's cheap, because it costs money to figure out how to drill shafts down a, a, down a mile. That's not cheap. Okay? It costs money to figure out how to pressurize liquids to crack the surface. That's not cheap. It, takes, it costs money to do seismic uh, backscatter in order to optimize the fracking process. That's not cheap. It takes money to train the crews how to do the work. That's not cheap, okay? Um, you've got to build out, building out uh, web work, of gathering and uh, distribution pipes and rail infrastructure is not cheap either, okay? in as of 2012, the actual cost of producing a barrel of oil from fracking was $90 a barrel, okay? That works great when it's a fiat currency, when currency and capital and all those assets are very cheap, okay? there, All of this stuff costs money. So we had a lot of production. We had a lot of production. We had a lot of production. But that doesn't mean that there was actually any profits that were derived from that, that adventure. So, like, one thing that was cool is, is it did create the greatest expansion of oil output in absolute terms of any patch ever in time. Okay. So I'm not saying it was all bad, but what you can understand is, is it only worked under that fiat environment where capital is very cheap. And so as we start looking at it, let's take a look at like the past presidents. Now we're trying to figure out, okay. So Bill Clinton, so he wasn't really necessarily known about fiscal prudence, was Bill Clinton, um, but he balanced the budget. So under George W. Bush, um, he ran some of the largest budget deficits since World War II. His successor, Barack Obama, doubled those deficits. And the next guy, Donald Trump, doubled them again. And as of this writing is what uh, Peter says, as of this writing, um, the next dude in line, Joe Biden, has bet his political life on multiple spending plans that if enacted would double those deficits again. Like, he blew, like Joe Biden, he's still in office. You can see that he literally just lit up and blew up our national debt like crazy. Absolutely stunning what he's been able to do, okay? So check this out. Enron, subprime, shell, federal deficit, everything that's going on in Europe, all of this money borrowing in China, it just, like the only way that any of that could ever actually be fueled is on the axi- on the back of very, very cheap capital. Which then is going to lead us into the next sections. So this is kind of the end of more. Okay. So here's, here's what fuels the market. Now, if you're trying to figure out, okay, what causes the market to work, what causes it to fuel? A lot of it has to do with young people. Young people have to borrow because they gotta, they gotta, they're starting a family, they gotta, they gotta get a house, they gotta get assets, they gotta get like all of a sudden. Just a great expansion. You think you buy, about buying a house? You got to buy a house. You got to buy a fridge. You got to buy furniture. You got to buy lights. You got to buy fixtures. You got to buy fertilizer for the lawn. You got to buy a lawnmower. You got to buy. you See what I mean? Just buy, 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 buy. When you get older, all those assets are in place so that you're not in a place of being a very high consumer. So that's the trick. You spend a lot when you're younger. Then, as you start to mature, you typically end up spending less. Uh, in in those particular societies, because you've already accumulated what you need. So the thing that has happened is, is industrialization kind of changed the game. And uh, the early industrializers experienced longer lifespans, okay, lower child mortality, leading to roughly tripling their population. At the same time, industrialization triggered mass urbanization, so massive buildup, which in led to smaller families and triggered, uh, uh, basically led to a smaller family and aging population. So it's kind of crazy how that takes and it plays out. Um, So, okay, so since the Cold War ended, nearly all people have gotten richer. Lovely, love it, love it, love it. But more importantly, for the world of finance, time compressed the nature of modernization process, which means all people have gotten older. In the 1990s to 2020, this has been just peachy because it meant all the richest and most upward mobile countries in the world were in a capital-rich stage of their aging process, more or less, all at the same time. Throughout three decades' time period, there have been a lot of countries with a lot of late 40s, 50s, 60s coming-of-age group that generate most of the capital. Their investment dollars and euros and yens and wands flooded into our system, often ignoring international borders. So there was everything, everything, more of everything, everywhere, between 1990 and 1920 is the best. It's the best we probably ever had because all you high, just people that are older, high production, high output, high just everything, a lot of capital, a lot of money. People have been the richest that they've ever been, and it created a lot of cheap capital sitting inside the marketplace that could allow to fuel massive amount of expansion. It allowed us to fuel a lot of stupid. Um, it created an explosion of stupid. Let me give you an example. GameStop, okay? All of a sudden, GameStop got, it's like a bankrupt company got bidded up to one of the most valuable companies in the United States. What? Um, cryptocurrency, okay? All of a sudden, currencies like Bitcoin, are not ba- they're not backed by a government, they're not readily exchangeable, are not used in any payment making, have no intrinsic value, are primarily generated by Chinese magnets seeking uh, an run around sanctions yet combined value of all cryptocurrency is less than two trillion Ah, uh, see the problem like there's not even enough money of it enough in the cryptocurrency to be able to help the world but it has no backup has no intrinsic value it doesn't generate doesn't it's kinda like Enron see what I mean uh, and so in the end probably not going to play out very good for them actually What's funny is, is at the time that he took and he created this book, he was talking about this cryptocurrency, and if you've seen the explosions in the cryptocurrency market, that thing is falling apart hand over fist, and he's like, dude, it's got no value. In fact, you got the Deutsche coin, which was just made up to to prove how dumb people were to invest money in it, and hot dang, did you see what happened? So, okay, problem is, see, the problem is, is even those people are getting wealthier they didn't stop aging. As we continue to industrialize, people can continue to get older and older and older. But what all this means is, is everybody is starting to convene. We didn't have a lot of kids. We urbanized. We, we So we didn't have a lot of kids. So there's not a younger generation. You look at Social Security. We've talked about this in the past. Like it used to be one person was on Social Security and had 17 people supplying them. Well, the, there's not enough people. Not enough kids that came along, and the, and folks are living longer. So now, that for every one person that's still alive on social, there's only two people paying into the system. And so, what happens is is worldwide, the demographics of age and all of that cheap capital, all of that cheap money that was in the marketplace. See, they didn't need the like they didn't need the money. They put it into assets. They put it into investments. They made it available. They made it liquid, so that it could be it could be the lubricant that kept the world going. But they didn't stop aging. So between the 1920s and the 1930s, everything is converging. In which all of a sudden everybody's going to start retiring at once. The capital will start coming off the market. So the only thing that fueled everything was access to cheap capital. And when the capital, when the the cheap capital comes down, everything pulls back. Everything pulls back. And so. It's all important to remember is like you've got the baby boomers like here in America, they'll re- they'll hit retirement in the first half of the 2020s. Then the retire- retirees will no longer have money to invest, they'll pull it out. Like if you think about it, everybody that gets ready to retire, they don't want they don't want their money to be fluctuating around. They want to figure out how do I take and retire. So they start moving it out into safer at safer investments and stuff, right? Well, all of a sudden. That money comes out of the market or, or being accessible. Plus, they're no longer, they're no longer generating high incomes like they were. And what happens is, is like the older generation, not only did they have the capital and they put the capital into the market so that things could get done, but they also paid a ton of money in taxes. So all of a sudden, all of this tax revenue that was used to be in you that was in there to pay for retirement. Was to pay for all these benefits all of that capital pulls out because they're no longer generating the income to go into it and so really it really comes down to the next generation which is these Millennials that actually have to finally kick in and be old enough to start working in the working force to generate the money fortunately America's got Millennials because most of the other countries in the world they're all screwed they're 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 aged into oblivion and they don't have enough young kids to backfill it So, really what it is, is there's a huge pendulum, and the pendulum will swing. So, okay, so in the United States, we know the big chunk of those surges in the subprime area. From 2000, when the subprime industry was birthed, to 2007, when it ended, total credit in the United States roughly doubled. So, this is important to understand. So, that time, the credit in the United States roughly doubled. The ensuing crash from such an ira- irrational exuberance knocked off roughly 5% of U.S. GDP and took about two years before we got our footing again. So here's the math. About a doubling of credit usually knocks off, for round numbers, about 5%. It has a 5% drop in economic uh, output. So let's go look at our poster child, Greece. Okay, Greece, they had a total expansion of 7%. Okay, they had, okay, total credit expanded uh, by a factor of seven in just seven years in Greece. The bill eventually became due, and the country crashed. So they're sitting inside receivership now. Germany, Germany's smarter. Like when, when the 2007-2009 financial crash hit, it didn't actually knock Germany. Now they, they bounced back the fastest out of everybody. Now the United Kingdom, uh, not so much. Uh, the United Kingdom, so they weren't a part of the Euro, but as part of being, uh, they were struggling, so they had the political left, political right, both of those parties completely imploded. Populists ultimately took control of the British political right and led the kingdom through the, the hazardous process we know today as Brexit. So Hungary, Hungary uh, in 2000 was among Europe's biggest, expanding by a factor of eight. Boy, those guys were hungry, rich for borrowing money. So they borrowed it at a factor of eight. So, Hungarians who were, who were able to afford their homes under normal circumstances suddenly saw their mortgage payments double. For all intents and purposes, Hungary is no longer a democracy. Ooh, how do you like the sound of that? Mm-mm, not so good. Now, Singapore, they expanded by fivefold since 2000. Okay, Singapore, Singapore has a very powerful asset, okay? Singapore sits on the Straits of um, Malacca. Not sure, how, I think hopefully I got it right. But it's the world's busiest trade route. So it serves in the world's uh, largest uh, tra- uh, transshipment center so much to the degree that it, um, that it fuels tanks, or that its fuel tanks hold and manage the distribution of so much petroleum that they constitute a global price standard. Should anything happen to the volatility of global trade, Singapore trade economics could not help but suffer in the short term regardless of how well they manage their city. Like, if the world takes and falls apart and the stuff stops passing through, Singapore is in deep, deep doo-doo. Australia is another one that's kind of interesting. Now, Australia has had pretty... They've had a very long run where they haven't experienced like continuous economic growth without actually having a lot of pullbacks, okay? So their credit has expanded six times since the year of 2000. Problem is, is they're, 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 the, the Australian dollar is up so high that it's been driving them forward to the, they're pretty much not competitive on anything. The only thing they've been left really being very competitive on is mining. But what this has done is this has driven or this has pushed people into owning real estate, and owning real estate, and so they start. And even if you own real estate, it's pushed you into buying more. They're, the problem is, is they're being pushed into driving and buying more stuff in the outback, which is beyond. He says right here, beyond useless um, residential real estate. And so when when the th- when when the game when the music stops, so to speak, on these guys, you're going to see Australia. It's going to blow. It's going to be. Pretty bad. Now Colombia, they've had uh, they've expanded their credit by five in the last ten, in ten years, beginning in two thousand three. But they've had a lot of civil wars and stuff going on inside of Colombia, and as a result, um, most of their their growing credit is being is being accumulated by just trying to buy back or to obtain lost ground that they wanted to get back, and so there what. Basically, they're going to continue to fuel this in the future as they try to figure out how to, how to kind of rebuild what they have. Um, Brazil. Brazil is very, very close to Greece. It had a six-fold increase, peaking in 2006. But here's where Brazil is. Brazil faces years of severe recession simply to recover from their credit over-expansion. Brazil isn't looking down the maw of a lost decade but they're looking down a loss of two decades at least in deep trouble. Saudi Arabia, these guys have been great. They had a 750% expansion in their credit. Good thing is they got this massive income that flows in from oil. But like the Saudis have been buying all kinds of crazy things that, you know, probably are not super practical. Figuring out how to vanity projects in the desert, subsidies to the populations and royalty families and stuff. Um, as long as the flow keeps going, they're feeling a little bit happy. But the problem is, is there's going to come a time when it will break and it's going to be spectacular. There's going to be a time when the United States is no longer going to police their waters and allow them to usher oil throughout the entire world at the expense of the Americans because we don't need their oil. Interesting. How about that? A little bit of awakening up that comes to them. Um, India, India has expanded theirs by a factor of 10 since the years of 2000. When the correction on uh, India arrives, it's going to be epic. Turkey. Turkey did a factor of 12 times the expansion of their credit. Of, of their credit. So, um, in 2013, the credit expansion stopped in its tracks. The loss of economic legitimacy, the pressure of 3 million refugees from the The Syrian war and the rising geopolitical hostility form and and towards Europe, Russia, Iraq, the United States means these guys become a very brittle, harsh, and increasingly authoritarian government. Uh, And all before that, these guys are going to suffer a pretty significant correction. Um, Russia, as of this time, you know that they invaded Ukraine as of February 28, 2020. Um, this is just going to be a horrific financial disintegration that's going to take place. That's going to play out right there. Um, the problem that Russia's got is they've got a population that's aging into descriptitude, whatever that means. They they just got, they got a bunch of old people that are, they, they don't have young people to repopulate their, their, their generation. They're just too old. Russia's credit collapse is all, um, all but baked in. Um, They'll be lucky if they even remain a state China when China blows This is going to be a blow of all blows these guys have just they've taken on too much debt too much credit And you're just going to see a big splash when China takes and finally falls apart so okay So what you can see is we got a a basically we've got a we've got an aging globalization which is which is a, is a collapsing the, the skilled labor supply. We got economic or financial shrinkage as everybody gets retired, which is going to then drive everything up to be more expensive and more difficult. And don't be don't be surprised if you hear in the future that there is there's going to be controls or lots of talk about flight of capital or capital controls. Okay, flight of capital is already taking place. So since the year two thousand. People have started having flight of capital coming inside the United States at about $1 trillion to $2.5 trillion a year. Um, let me give you an example. Um, one of the stocks that Warren Buffett recently in, invested in was the Taiwan Semiconductor Company. They, they already know that they already have a problem to continue to manufacture over there in Thailand or Taiwan. What they did is they went down to Phoenix, and they set up a manufacturing facility so they could bring high-end chip manufacturing inside the United States. We have access to all the resources we need, okay, so that we can manufacture. And they recognize that. They recognize that they have a gap, they have an aging population, they have all kinds of things that aren't working right, so they manufacture there. Japan already knows the same thing. So they manufacture. they manufacture all kinds of stuff inside the United States. lot of these guys have known it so the capital has been flying or coming into America okay and so all that stuff comes into place so there's things that are to understand this there's things that cause inflation there's things that cause disinflation so things that cause inflation or inflation is is when costs rise and a lot of this can be tied to supply and demand so if you have a supply chain disruption like we have since COVID and it hasn't recovered then all of a sudden Costs go up, or if someone hijacks a shipping container, um, or a young hop- or population needs a bunch of food or housing, or all of a sudden everybody wants that uh, there's fads because everybody wants a cabbage patch doll, um, everybody wants to expand their monetary supply, everybody wants to, I don't know, all kinds of things that come into play that can take and trigger inflation. Things that will trigger a disinflation is like all of a sudden you got a, an iPhone and the iPhone can already do multiple things. That's disinflationary because the same thing can do multiple things. And so it has a disinflationary uh, effect. So every time we start pumping out my money and printing, like it it literally will end up triggering inflation. So we've got positive inflation right now. Um, like energy for example, year over year is 47% increase. Where I'm at, we're looking at probably like a 50% increase in the cost of electricity just at where I'm at since since last year. Okay. And so it it, it's gonna cause it's gonna cause inflation. And we haven't we haven't recovered from the COVID disrupting the supply chains. And as as America stops policing it, you'll see a continued rise in this inflation. So some things that can that we're gonna call that will take and trigger this. well, okay, some things that can cause uh, disinflation is the, the, the fall of consumption of an aging population. A bunch of people old, they're not going to have to consume as much, while breaking supply chains is inflationary. Building new industrial plants to replace uh, international supply chains is inflationary. While the process is underway, then once the facility is in place, it's disinflationary as the work is completed. So, um, let's see. It's, he comes in here and he says that there's there will be an there are, the Americans are going to be an exception. So uh, the world's best topographies will help keep development costs low. Fortunately, America has got we, we're an asset rich country where we can be energy independent. We have access to a lot of precious metals resources between us, Canada, South South America. We have access to labor in Mexico. We have a lot of things that are very very well. And still the same, we would be in deep, deep trouble if we did not have the uh, the millennials. The millennials are the younger generation. Fortunately, we had a bunch of kids that showed up in the form of millennials, where a lot of countries throughout the world did not have it. Which means, which is part of the reason you're seeing massive capital flow that flows inside the United into the United States because we at least have. We, it might cost more to manufacture here, but we, we at least have people to do the job. So, all right. So, here's what we know. If we think that life is going to be a little bit challenging for us here in America, it is going to be a nightmare for most of the rest of the world. Okay. That right there was Peter Zaihan. Um, as he was starting to talk about currencies and stuff. So this is, I think this is number six. I've got several more that I'll take and I'll go through. Um, anyway, this is a rags rich of secrets and I will talk to you.